about uh, being desperate for the Word of God to be spoken to us. Uh, that's what we're here to do. And I want to say, um, if my memory serves me correctly, at least in the years that I served as pastor here, uh, this particular Sunday was traditionally observed as the anniversary Sunday for Galilean Baptist Church. In fact, my um, second Sunday, I think it was, uh, here at Galilean, um, 18 years ago, uh, was on an anniversary Sunday, and I believe we were celebrating the 25th anniversary back then, if I remember correctly. And so, if that's the case, happy anniversary to you all. Uh, this is not actually part of the message, but I'll say it anyhow. Uh, God obviously, I believe, um, had a purpose in establishing this church. However many years ago that was. I'd have to stop and do the math to figure it up now. 18 plus 25. There you go. Um, and I believe he still has that purpose. And as, until Jesus comes again, he will have that purpose. And I believe God will strengthen this work and, and uh, put it back on his feet, so to speak. Not that it's necessarily off its feet, but strengthen maybe the feeble knees, if I can borrow loosely from that phrase from the Scriptures, and uh, cause it to be a, a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community. I want to talk with you this morning about the attitude of Christian citizens, as you see on the screen. I want to begin by asking this question, um, many, if not all of you, well, I guess it wouldn't be all of you, at least there's one at least in this room that I know for certain, maybe a couple, that have not yet been in this role or had this role in their life, but many of you have been parents. What I mean is you raised your children and now they, they're grown and you're in the grandparenting or great-grandparenting uh, stage of life. Or you're, you are parents, meaning you're still actively engaged in that parenting role. Those of you who have or are, been, uh, are, are or have been parents know that um, parents uh, have a lot of things that they have to do and say. And um, there are many things that um, parents say that we all say, right? Things like, don't make me come back there. Any of you ever say that? Or, or how about... Be because I told you so, or because I said so, or because I'm the mom, or I'm the dad. Any of you say those kinds of things? How about this one? How many of you have ever said, don't give me that attitude? Okay. How many of you ever said, don't give me that attitude, when the child was compliantly doing what they were told to do, but yet there was not the attitude that was desired to go along with it? Do you ever have that experience? I say that because attitude is amazingly important. It's important when it comes to children and raising children. It's also important when it comes to the citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Attitude is defined as a settled way of thinking or feeling. A settled way of thinking or feeling. When we look this morning at Philippians chapter 2, which is the text of Scripture that I want to explore with you, we see exemplified in Jesus Christ the settled way of thinking that we as Christian citizens are admonished to adopt and to follow as we live out our citizenship here on earth. So Father, I ask as we open your word that you would meet with us now and manifest your presence as we've just sung about it. I ask, Father, that you would Grant and work 
by your spirit that your spirit would find freedom to work within us. I ask, Father, that your spirit would work to open the eyes of our understanding, enlighten the minds of our hearts so that we might, first of all, understand what we're reading in the text of Scripture. Understand what it means and through it, what you are communicating, what you are saying to us today, 2,000 or so years later. I ask furthermore, Father, though, that you would also manifest the presence and the power of your Spirit so that we might not only understand, but that we might also receive it with meekness, that we would gladly embrace the truths that we discover in this text of Scripture so that we might know you better, we might know Christ better, and that we might make Christ known better. So help us to this end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking this morning at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, but I want to begin by backing up and reviewing for you verses 27 uh, through 30 of chapter 1. I pointed out last week that uh, in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1, you have the first commandment in the letter. When Paul said there, only let your manner of life be worthy, and the word there, as I pointed out last week, means worthy as a citizen, meaning congruent with your citizenship. Let your manner of life, let the way that you live reflect the fact that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. We talked about your dual citizenship last week, and that though you are a citizen of the United States of America, you have a higher citizenship, and that is in the kingdom of Christ in heaven. So Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul, as we saw in uh, that uh, passage last week, commands these Christians, these believers in the city of Philippi, who were Roman citizens, we pointed out last week, to exemplify their higher citizenship in the kingdom of Christ by living in such a way that reflected their unity, their oneness. He said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, am I here of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. They were to reflect the fact that they were united. In fact, that kind of uh, relates to something that Mike was sharing earlier uh, in the Sunday school hours. He was talking about the, the major uh, denominations, if you want to use that term, of uh, the, the early colonies and the colonial churches. And the fact that even though they, they disagreed and differed in terms of their understanding and their views on, on several significant doctrines, they also still practiced what we would today call ecumenism in the sense that they supported one another. They, they, they assisted one another. I believe, I'm getting the impression at least, and I'd have to ask Mike if this indeed is the case, 
but I suspect because they believed that even though they disagreed on some significant issues, baptism, eschatology, uh, and so forth, even though they disagreed on several significant issues, they still agreed on what they considered to be the significant issue, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed, and they all believed that each other believed, that the proclamation and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ was important enough that they could overlook, so to speak, their disagreements on some of those other issues and support and, and assist one another in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is concerned about here in this passage. He's concerned that these Christians in the city of Philippi would demonstrate that solidarity, that unity that is rooted in the, the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw that in the example of Paul in the earlier verses of chapter 1 as we looked at his ambitions and uh, suggested that that is a model for us to follow. So this is the context. This is the reason why I review this for you and put it out. This is the context for this next commandment that Paul gives us as we move into chapter 2. You see in uh, the first few verses, and again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. If you're reading from uh, the NAS, NIV, the, the King James or New King James, you may have the word therefore is the first word of verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he said, fulfill my joy or complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now the English Standard Version uh, translates the first word of the verse, so if. But the point is, and I, and I point this out, the point is that Paul is now drawing a an application, if you will. He's making a conclusion. He's giving another commandment that is rooted in the earlier commandment that, the, that, our, that our Christian citizenship should shape and affect and influence the way that we live. And a primary concern is that we reflect that Christian citizenship by showing our unity rooted or centered around the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, Paul said, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted the Christians of Philippi to understand the necessity of attitude. And what we're looking at this morning is a radical mindset. And you can go to the slide that says radical thinking for redeemed people. Paul wants us as believers in Jesus Christ to understand that our attitude as Christian citizens should be that of Christ who emptied himself for our sake. This is really the, the summation of the message of these 11 verses that we're looking at this morning. Last week, we, as I said, looked at Paul's example in um, the earlier verses, really the middle verses of the first chapter, as he talked about his ambitions that Christ be preached and that Christ be magnified. Now, Paul shares with us and, and causes us to reflect on Christ's example with the intent that we would learn from that example and that we would follow that example. In other words, that we would begin to think like Christ thought when he first of all let go of his, his uh, identity with God the Father. He let go of... Is, I can't think of the word that I'm trying to come up with. 
his commonality, meaning he had everything that God the Father had. He let go of those things to clothe himself in human flesh, coming in the form of a servant and dying the death of a servant, all for our sakes. And Paul wants us to learn from that example and, and, and again, as I said, begin to think that way so that we will reflect our Christian citizenship here on earth. Your attitude, Paul is telling us, as a Christian citizen, should be that of Christ who emptied himself for our sake. So Paul, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, and you can go to the next slide, makes an appeal to like-mindedness. He makes an appeal to like-mindedness. He says, first of all, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I think it's similar to what he said earlier in chapter 1 when he said that he wanted to hear or see that they were standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Now I want you to notice, first of all, before we look more carefully at the specific command, that um, there's some reasons for this command, for them in particular. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, I think it's the New King James translates it, any consolation in Christ. And by the way, each of the ifs in this first verse are ifs that are assumed to be true. They're what are called third-class conditions in the Greek language, if you're interested at all or care at all about that grammatical information. But what it means is it's a condition that's assumed to be true. And sometimes you can translate it since, therefore. In other words, you could say, since there is encouragement in Christ, since we have comfort from love, since there is participation or fellowship in the Spirit, and since we have affection and sympathy, therefore we should do these things. It's not a question of whether or not these things are, exist and are available to us in Christ. They are. The question is whether or not we are going to embrace them and let them affect the way that we think toward and about one another. We have, he said, consolation or comfort. The word is... Uh, a soft word for encouragement or exhortation. It's a word for calling someone alongside of someone or actually coming alongside someone else, sort of putting your arm around them to encourage them. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the comforter, because he comes alongside of us and he calls to us. Since there is comfort or encouragement, since there is comfort, encouragement, in, in, in this word means alleviation. It, there's, there's an encouraging word. Since there is fellowship of the Spirit, this is a word that refers to individuals who share things in common. Uh, Jenny and I have fellowship. We have koinonia, which is the Greek word, because we share in common our shared task of making your bulletin board profitable. She's to, she sees to it that all the legitimate pre-classified ads that get submitted are entered into the system and published. I say legitimate. She has a keen eye for catching the ones that are uh, trying to get in there under the radar that shouldn't be in there. Um, and and, and uh, I, of course, get the job of driving around. My wife says I get paid to drive around, Ray, in case you never realized that. Uh, and I'm, I enjoy driving around. 
Uh, I love uh, seeing the country, but I also try to sell a few advertisements along the way. It's just to at least you know cover for my addict and or my addiction, rather addiction meaning driving around. Just in case you're wondering what I mean there. Um, so anyhow, we have we have some commonality, Jenny and I do. We we both are committed to the same cause at your bulletin board. Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have commonality. We are all ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, if there's consolation in Christ, if there's comfort of love, if there's fellowship in the Spirit, and then finally he says, if there's any affection and mercy, affection is is a tenderness. My wife always loved this, loves this word. The Greek word is splachna. You really want to say that. You've got to have some, some moisture in your throat, by the way, when you say that word, because you've got to all, almost be able to spit when you say it. It's splachna. You know what it means? It literally refers to your bowels. You might call it a quiver in your liver. You know, it's that, that feeling that you felt inside. I understand that Ray and Linda are going to make a little trip here to celebrate uh, uh, their, their years together and their meeting. And my wife and I uh, celebrated our, our first date, uh, you know, and it's that, that feeling that you felt when you looked across the table and you, you saw the glow in her eyes and you knew right then and there, she, she's the one for me, right? It's, it refers, all joking aside, it refers to the actual physical tenderness that, that, that stirs up within us. Um, it's kind of like the affection that a mother has for her child. Paul says if there's any tenderness, any real compassion within us, and mercy, mercy here refers to tender feelings manifested in compassionate yearnings and actions. Paul said if these things exist, and the fact is that they do, they are ours in Christ, then, verse 2, gets the command, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, Paul said, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what I'm pointing out here is that we have an appeal to like-mindedness in these first four verses. And that like-mindedness results in really two things, as you saw on the screen earlier. It results, first of all, in the fact that we are each esteeming others better than ourselves. Paul said in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now I called this in an earlier aside radical thinking for redeemed people because in the culture of Roman Philippi, that was not the common practice. It was not expected, nor was it in fact admired that anyone should ever esteem others better than themselves. In the culture of Roman Philippi, it was practiced and it was in fact regarded as desirable that you would focus on yourself, that you would promote yourself, that you would make sure that everyone knew all about your accomplishments, your achievements, your degrees, and so on and so forth. Paul tells us that as a result of our Christian citizenship, as a result of the things that we have in Christ, we are to be doing nothing out of rivalry or conceit. That is, nothing out of the ambition to promote ourselves. The word for uh, 
rivalry is a word that related to a noun for a day laborer. And it referred to self-seeking pursuit, either the pursuit of profit or place or power. And the conceit literally refers to empty praise. You know, noise without any real substance. Empty praise or glory, personal vanity. Paul's saying, don't do anything. Don't let the motivation, the attitude of, 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 of what you do to be your own promotion, your own pursuit of, of, of profit, place, or power. But instead, he said, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In lowliness of mind. And that term is significant because Paul will use it again in relation to Christ to describe his lowliness of mind when he became one of us. In lowliness of mind, he said, let each esteem or count or consider. It's actually an accounting term. It means that you reach or make a conclusion. You make a conscious choice to regard your brother or your sister. And the word is better. Literally, it means to be superior than himself. Now think about that. Paul is saying that rather than promoting ourselves in the humility that Christ himself exemplified and, and, and modeled for us, that Christ himself, in fact, had, in that humility, because of the things that we have in Christ, we are to be making a conscious choice to regard our brothers and sisters in Christ as superior to ourselves. So what that means, among other things, is that in the body of Christ, we ought not to be looking for or expecting from others that they would, say, for example, be singing the praises of our glory. We ought not to be expecting that Everyone else ought to be praising us. We ought not to be expecting that everyone else should be, you know, groveling at our feet, for example, over how wonderful we are, and over how, how great it is that God has put you in our assembly. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do that for one another. But what it means is that we shouldn't be expecting it from one another. We ought not be expecting praise. We also ought not to be expecting and striving after positions of power and authority and control or personal profit either for that matter. I am personally convinced, by the way, that God, being sovereign, is the one who determines who will serve Him in those kinds of capacities. I mean by that, who will serve Him in positions of authority of leadership, of control, if you will. I hope that this doesn't come across in the wrong way because I don't mean it this way. But I have in the course of my life and, and ministry and uh, employment had the occasion, in numerous occasions, in different settings, different contexts, to have been placed into positions of leadership, of leadership different sorts. And I can stand before God with God as my witness and tell you today that in every one of those situations, God put me there that I never sought a one of them. Every position, I believe, if I can say this in all honesty, 
in every position of leadership that I've ever found myself in, I found myself in not because I campaigned for it, not because I positioned myself for it, not because I tried to get myself into it. In fact, I don't think in any of them I was ever really looking for it, per se. Other than maybe when God brought me here to Galilee Baptist Church. But even then I was really only open to what God wanted to do and he, he left. But in every case, God put me there. Now I tell you that because that's what I think is supposed to be our mindset. We are not supposed to be seeking the position. We're not supposed to be campaigning for the position. You know, trying to get the position. If God puts us there, praise God for it and make sure you're faithful to fulfill it because that's a divine responsibility He's put upon you. By the way, if you've never been in a position of leadership, let me tell you, it's not all fun and glory. It's an awesome responsibility to have leadership over others. So, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit means, among other things, that rather than seeking praise and glory from others, it means instead we're seeking to give praise and glory to others. It means that we're seeking to encourage others and show appreciation for their work and their labor of love and their service and their ministry in our lives. This appeal to like-mindedness means that we are to be each esteeming others better than ourselves. But there's more. In verse 4, he tells us that it also means that we are each regarding others' interests. Really, the idea seems to be ahead of our own. He said in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Literally in the, in the Greek text, the passage reads something like this. I don't actually have the Greek text in front of me, so I'm trying to go from my memory. So forgive me if my memory is a little bit fuzzy. But it reads something like, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, the word only that you find in the first half of the verse, the first half of the phrase, is actually not, there's not a Greek word in the Greek text that's translated only. The way the text is written, the way the verse was written, it, it seems to uh, strengthen the idea that you're not looking after your own interests, but rather you're looking after the interests of others. Now, having said that, the reason why you find the English word only, probably in most every translation you, you, you can read, is because the word is implied by the use of the word also in the second half of the verse, which is in the Greek text. But each of you look not to his own interests, but also, if you're also looking to someone else's interests, then what does that suggest? That you must be looking to your own, right? So, stick with me here. Don't get lost in the grammar, because the grammar is significant. What it means is this, that we are each to be at least as concerned, if not more concerned, with the affairs and the interests of others than we are our own. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that we become busybodies in everyone else's personal business. The scriptures repeatedly and strongly warn against that. In fact, in Paul's writings elsewhere in the New Testament, he has some very stern words 
for those who would participate in that kind of activity. It's one of those sins, quite frankly, that we tolerate in our churches that frankly is much more destructive and, and much more egregious than some of the sins that we don't tolerate. The sin of being a busybody, meaning sticking your nose in and meddling in the affairs of other people. So to esteem or regard the interests of others over your own does not mean that you're always poking your nose in their business and you're meddling in their affairs, particularly when you're not invited and not needed. But what it does mean is this. It means that you have regard for the, what they need. It means that you're sensitive to, you care about, and you're eager to, to do whatever you can to assist them in their time of need. I'm aware of um, some folks, some that are very close to my, my wife and I, some that are uh, still close but not quite as close. I'm aware of some folks who, out of an awareness of, of an individual's needs, have sacrificially given out of their own resources, either to provide housing, say for example, for someone, provide whatever is needed for someone. That, I believe, is what Paul is talking about in this passage. He's saying that this like-mindedness that is supposed to be ours as citizens of the kingdom of Christ is a like-mindedness that manifests itself in the fact that we are not so absorbed with ourselves. We're not so absorbed with our needs. I'm not so absorbed with paying my mortgage and paying my bills and making sure that my personal property taxes are paid by the end of the month so I don't have to pay more for them. Anybody identify with that one? I'm not so absorbed with those things that I lose sight of the fact that there are others around me that have needs as well. And as God allows me to become aware of their needs, I, I do whatever I can, whatever God has granted to me in the resources He's given me to assist them with their needs. That's the appeal to like-mindedness. It's an appeal that flows out of an attitude that Paul shares with us that comes from Jesus Christ Himself. So let's look at the attitude of Christ-likeness. And that's found in verses 5 through 11. Paul says as we continue on in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you're reading from the King James or the New King James, as you see there on the screen, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That old expression, thought it not robbery, simply means that he did not think that he had to cling to what was his. You didn't have to pry Christ's fingers off of his equality with God when the time came for him to be incarnated on this earth. That's what that expression means, which is why it's translated in the English Standard Version that he did not consider it a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The attitude of Jesus Christ, the attitude that we are being admonished to adopt and to absorb and to practice is the attitude exemplified, first of all, in his self-emptying. Paul tells us in verses 5 and 6, particularly in verse 6, that though he was in the form of God, do you understand that though the man, Jesus, that we call the Christ, and by the way, this is sort of a little rabbit trail, but in case you weren't aware, Christ is not Jesus' last name, like Doug Packard. Packard is my last name. It's my family name, right? Your surname. Christ was not Jesus' surname. Jesus' mother's surname wasn't Christ. Christ is a title. It's literally Jesus the Anointed One. It's the Greek equivalent of calling him the Hebrew Messiah. Christ is the Messiah, which means he was authorized by God. He was sent by God with all of God's authority to accomplish God's will. That's what Christ means. So when you read Jesus Christ, that's what it's saying. It's saying Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed One. Jesus the One authorized by God the Father. Now Jesus is the person who was born physically of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, right? And he grew up like a child, as Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. He grew in wisdom and stature. He lived basically in obscurity for about 30 years as a carpenter. And then he came to prominence and had about three and a half years of public ministry that turned the world upside down, resulting in his death, burial, and resurrection. So Jesus was born, lived, and died at about 33 years of age. His old poem, Jesus and Alexander, died at 33. And the rest, I can't remember how it goes on, to be honest with you. But it's a comparison of Jesus and uh, Alexander the Great. But the point is that Jesus existed, if you will, within the scope of time that you and, all, you and I all live in. We live within time, right? My existence in this time uh, realm started in January 31st, 1964 at 3.20 something in the afternoon, if I remember correctly. Some of yours started earlier than that. I won't divulge my knowledge of that information so that I don't embarrass any of you. I would never want to do any of that, right? We exist in time. Well, Jesus came and existed in time for 33 years, from probably roughly 3 or 4 B.C. until about 29 A.D., most likely. But do you understand that the Son of God, who came and existed and dwelt, as, Paul, as John puts it in John chapter 1, he tabernacled among us, that the Jesus, the Son of God, though he came and existed for 33 years along with us, that before that and after that, he always existed with God. Notice again what Paul said. Who, though he was in the form of God. 
He did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is and always has been God. He became God in the flesh and dwelt among us for 33 years. And now he still is God. In fact, John tells us in John chapter 1 that he is the member of what we call the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the member of the Trinity who created all that exists in this world. Jesus, by his power, spoke into existence everything that exists on this planet except for human beings. 